This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am chatting with Elise Hooper about Angels of the Pacific. A native New Englander, Elise spent several years writing for television and online news outlets before getting an MA and teaching high school literature and history. She now lives in Seattle with her husband and two daughters. I love this book and cannot wait for everyone to get to read it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Elise. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I am so glad you're here. I feel like it has been a while since we talked, and I'm thrilled to pieces that you're back. I know. I miss seeing you in person, even. We've had such good times in Texas before. Absolutely. I miss seeing you in person as well. But I love this book, and I'm so excited to talk about it. So why don't we start out with you just giving me a quick summary of Angels of the Pacific for those that won't have read it yet. Sure. So Angels of the Pacific, I've got to get used to saying that now that, you know, it's my new title, is a novel about, uh, it's inspired by these women who have become known as the Angels of Bataan. And this refers to a group of U.S. Army and Navy nurses who were largely farm girls from the 1930s, you know, living in the United States in kind of rural existences. And many of them wanted off the farm. And so college being expensive, uh, nursing school was the best option. So these women would have applied to nursing school and attended. And then the armed forces offered them the opportunity to travel. And so, you know, if you're a young woman in the 1930s, suddenly becoming a U.S. Army nurse was a great prospect for adventure. And so a wonderful posting for that time period was considered Manila. It was called the Pearl of the Orient, even. And so women, these U.S. Army and Navy nurses were in Manila and and surrounding area of Manila and the Philippines working as nurses because it was the tropics. They only had to work for four hours a day. So these women were kind of living, honestly, their best lives. They were taking Spanish classes and they were horseback riding and playing tennis. And really, you know, after a kind of a grim decade at home, we're, we're, able to experience, you know, a beautiful place. And they had housekeepers and cooks for the first time in their life due to the change in standards of living. And suddenly when Pearl Harbor is bombed 
at the same time, the invasion of the Philippines begins by the Japanese Imperial Army. And these women spend the first about seven months on the front lines serving as nurses, well beyond those four hours a day that were originally prescribed during peacetime. And then they are taken as prisoners of war. And they spend the next uh, about two and a half years in a Japanese prison camp. And what's amazing is that all of these women survive. And so it's a real story of resilience and hope and getting through tough times. So it felt like a very, you know, I began this book in about 2019 and having no idea, of course, a pandemic was coming. And this has been a book that's really proven to, I've taken a lot of hope in it and it's given me a lot of perspective on, during our own recent tough times. So I find it very uplifting. And really, as we are looking so much to optimism and hope, this book, I think, really falls squarely into that category. It's a part of the war that I knew very little about till I read your book. And these women went through so much and it was just so difficult. And I think it's really interesting you read so much about Europe during World War II, and I just, there was so little I knew about this area until I read your book, which surprised me a lot, I guess. Right. Well, so my own grandfather served in the Pacific during World War II, and that's actually kind of what tipped me off. He was aboard the USS Missouri when MacArthur signed the peace treaty with the Japanese, and he then went into Tokyo with MacArthur uh, to see the devastated city. And he came home with this child's kimono for my mom. It's hand-sewn. It's this beautiful little silk kimono. And I've always looked at that and kind of wondered what the story was behind it. And so, you know, as I always like to write about women who have been kind of overlooked by history, I started digging around the Pacific and stories of the Pacific And that's when I found the story about these women in the Philippines. And I just knew right away that this was the story. I mean, the fact that these women really all attribute their survival to sisterhood and service, that just really spoke to me. And also, the story really of when they come home is really interesting to me, too, because they are trotted out by the government as kind of propaganda of uh, U.S. womanhood, you know, successfully conquering at the front. And yet the women really felt kind of underserved by the government. They returned home in many cases with a fair, you know, sorrow and grief and all these things. And they weren't really ever expected to talk about that. And so there just felt like there were a lot of different things to explore with this war in the Pacific. And and to your point, I mean, I was learning so much too, because I I really had never, I've really been focused on the war in Europe and, and we're not alone because actually the reason that the war in the Pacific kind of lasts for as long as it does is because the U S government tells essentially everyone in the Pacific, you know, we're going to go win the war in Europe. You all just hang in there best you can. and, And we'll come back for you when we can. And so that really set up all these people uh, who were in all these different islands and everything to for a long few years of waiting for, for a really concerted effort toward victory to return to the Pacific. And I think you just read so much about the war in Europe, right. and you just don't read as much about the Pacific. I think there are starting to be more and more books, but I think it's just one of those things, you know, as I was reading it, I'm like, oh, this is just so different than what they were experiencing in Europe. Yes. And so grim at times. I realize, yes, your book does have hope, but like at the early parts of it, I was like, these poor women. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think part of that is a really practical thing of, I mean, we tend to go to Europe, right? On vacations for writers, it's 
very tempting to go on a research trip, of course, to Paris and, and places like that. I did travel to the Philippines to research this book, and it was it was a much it, it was a longer trip for one thing. And I, I say that even coming from my home in Seattle, it was I think about a sixteen hour flight, and it's two flights then one to Tokyo and then one on to Manila. Long trips, you do not have the full advantage of all these travel books out there. I mean, I, I definitely felt like I was stretching my abilities as a traveler a little to step into kind of a part of the world I did not know as much about, which was really exciting. And boy, I mean, I learned so much through that trip that I really am so glad I was able to do that. But I think that's part of it too, of why maybe we don't read quite as much about the Pacific. And there's also the challenge of it's very easy to write about Nazis as bad guys. We know, I mean, we continue to know that Nazis are bad guys. But when writing about the Japanese, it's it's a trickier antagonist in many ways, because there was just so much cultural misunderstanding at the time, uh, so much overt racism. And so uh, I, I found I had a lot of learning to do around that as well. I remember when you took your trip, and it was right before everything shut down. And I had so much fun seeing all your photos and hearing about everything you learned. It must have just been amazing. It was. I mean, so it was crazy timing in retrospect. It was February of 2020. And that was a trip. I actually spoke to a friend of mine who's an epidemiologist before I left and said, should I be going on this trip? And he said, well, I actually don't think you're going to have to decide. I think the borders are all going to shut down before you leave. I mean, he presented a very grim picture, which at the time I thought, huh, really? And the government actually didn't shut anything down. So I, I went and I even attended a travel clinic here in Seattle at one of the local hospitals where they reviewed my itinerary and they said, okay, we need to give you some malaria medicine because you're heading to some islands where you can contract malaria. And we'll give you a Z-pack in case you have any stomach issues, but um, you should be good to go. And I said, so what about this coronavirus thing? And they said, well, you're not getting on a cruise ship and you're not going to China, so you'll be fine. <laughs> and, and the truth is, of course, we were fine. I, I took my 16-year-old daughter and we were fine, but we made it home in the nick of time. I mean, the state of Washington declared a state of emergency the day we walked through the gate at SeaTac on September, uh, not September, on February 29th of 2020. So. I look back on that trip and it was such a crazy thing in many ways, but I am really glad I went. Uh, first of all, it was the last real significant travel I've done in the last few years. And also I would have written a really different book had I not gone. I mean, I met this amazing historian in Manila. She led me around and I learned so much from her and she ended up being an early reader for me and providing a lot of really helpful feedback as I was working on the book. So she really emboldened me to try to write the, the character of Flor, who is a Filipina in Manila during the war. And she's kind of on the outside of the prison camp. In an early draft of the book, I realized, huh, you know, I, I, this is really focused on Americans in the Philippines. But what was it like for all the Filipinos who were also dealing with this occupation? And so with the help of my friend Des, this historian I met in Manila, I felt much better about trying to tackle that perspective in this book. I liked that you included that perspective as well. I felt it was important. I felt that, yeah, it, you can't write a story set in the Philippines without, without delving into this Filipino perspective. I really started feeling strongly about that. Absolutely. You don't want to just dump all the Americans there and then not include the actual people living there. Right, exactly. What was the hardest part about writing this book? 
So the most challenging aspect of writing this book was navigating all of these different perspectives because I really wanted to understand the legacy of colonialism in the Philippines and how that really affects all these different people who live there and not just Filipinos, but Manila during the 1940s was a very diverse city. One of the probably most diverse of the era, simply because of this legacy of colonialism by several different countries. So you have Europe and America and parts of Asia all converging in this one country that has its own very interesting history. So understanding all of those different influences was both the challenge and the real reward. And I think all of those tensions converging are part of what really make the story interesting. The other thing I think is interesting is that it's such a different climate mm-hmm. and it's such a different topography. And that was the part that early on when they're in the jungle, or at least it seems like it's the jungle, you know, it's just a totally different arena, different yes. area than when you're in Europe as well. And you're encountering different types of things. 100%. In fact, I think often what we associate with books we may have read about World War II in Europe is the cold, right? I think of night and those scenes in which these people who have been put in concentration camps are walking through snow and they're, they have no warm clothes and shoes and all of that. Well, now flipping to the reverse of that, of what it was like in the tropics is just a totally different ballgame. And suddenly the fact that malaria is actually the most dangerous predator of anyone for parts of the story, the, the threats really were different in a place like the Philippines. And so, and I I partly got to experience that firsthand when I went because, you know, I traveled from Seattle to Manila in February of 2020. And oh my goodness, the heat was, I am not really used to the heat. And it was so hot. I can't imagine really what it was like to be working and be kind of under siege and all of that in such tremendous heat and and humidity. So there were a lot of ways I needed to learn of really how this was a different theater of war, for sure. And a different type of war. At times, it reminded me a little bit of a precursor to the Vietnam War. Yes, yes. I I think that's a really apt. uh, I mean, a lot of the same issues are at play, really, too, with having kind of a foreign force in a culture that they don't fully understand, uh, that is all happening here too. So I think that's, and and it's right across the China Sea. So there is actually real geography in common between these places. So yes, that's a good connection that you made. Thank you. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? That's a great question. I, I, I think all that's happened over the last couple of years, for one thing, I hope that readers have a similar reaction that I did when I learned about all this, which was that we have come through hard times before and we are more sort of resilient than we think. And boy, if we could get through that, we can get through anything. So part of it is, I hope, a a message of hope and resilience. But I also hope that it does broaden maybe readers' interest into learning about other parts of the war and specifically books about Asia, because there is such a fascinating history in so many of these different places that I think Americans always tend to look west. And yet, I mean, I know you were a big fan of The Mountain Sing, which I also loved that book. And I think we can learn a lot more about other cultures and 
the role that America's played in some of these other cultures by by looking toward Asia. And I think we're seeing more and more books out there that are addressing these topics. So I hope that readers are are interested in tackling more. I agree completely. I do think it's an area we don't often know nearly as much about, but we are starting to see more and more books, which is wonderful. Yes, agreed. And you're including a map, right, in the final version of this one? Yes, and that's partly thanks to your feedback. I think you're absolutely right. This is a part of the world people don't really know their geography, understandably, with. So having a map, even just so that readers kind of understand the difference between Manila and Bataan and, and how some of these places are, are were challenging to get to and required significant travel. All of that is important. So there will be a map in the final version of the book. I'm really, I actually did a rough draft of the first one and turned it in somewhat proudly, I must admit. And boy, the map I got back is completely <laughs> redone. <laughs> so there's always a humbling part of that happening too. That is hilarious. Well, what I find when I'm reading about these areas that I don't know off the top of my head, it's really hard for me to get a sense for where is Bataan set compared to where is Manila. So I just Googled, but I think in the book to be able to look at it and be like, oh, okay, they're traveling from here to here, that it would take this amount of time, this is what it looks like, is so helpful. And maps and books are just beautiful. Oh, yeah, it's always actually been on my bucket list to have a book that needed a map because I just, I love maps in general. And so I'm really excited about this. And, and you know, I, I, I will say too, that when I went to the Philippines, you can see Bataan practically from Manila, and yet it's still so far away. I mean, a lot of the logistics of getting to places in the Philippines is much more complicated than it is, for example, of traveling even around the United States or Europe. The train systems are not as elaborate. And so, uh, yeah, I think to your point, it's really helpful to have some physical sense of the area in which we're working with. It just helps you enjoy the book a little bit more when you can really, truly visualize it. Right, right. And and also the island of Corregidor that we haven't really talked about. I really want people to see, understand where that is in relation to Manila and even this peninsula that's known as Bataan, because the book does take place in several different locations throughout the Philippines. So you're exactly right that it is helpful for readers to see how everyone's moving around. Why don't you talk about that island now? Because we haven't really talked about that. Well, I, I will admit that Corregidor is part of the reason I really wanted to go to the Philippines. I really needed to see this. And so the idea with uh, Corregidor is it's this fortified island that has all these tunnels built into it, underneath it. And so the American forces actually end up hold up there. That's kind of their fight. That is literally their final stand in the Philippines is they continue to retreat first they retreat out of Manila, they retreat to Bataan. And then when Bataan falls, they end up all on this fortified island, essentially living in these tunnels. And I just could not imagine what the, I mean, were these tunnels small? What were they like? I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And there aren't, there are some pictures online, but I needed to see it firsthand. And so am I glad I did because these were tunnels that had been, they were actually dug out by prison inmates from Manila, but they, it was, I think, taken on, I actually need to brush up a little on my history here, of, I think it was undertaken by the Corps of Engineers that built it, and I'm not, before the war. And you could drive trucks into these tunnels. They're huge. And it's a real engineering feat. There was temperature control and fans. And and so as just pound after thousands of pounds, tons of bombs are being dropped on this island. And so the island is being reduced to absolute rubble. 
And it was an island, by the way, known for its beauty before. It was the military base there was considered one of the most desirable postings in the world. Well, all of that is just blown to smithereens. And so when the forces all end up in these tunnels, I just needed to see what this was like. And it was fascinating. I mean, when I went in 2020, my daughter and I were the only people to spend the night in this inn that's there, this one inn, aside from the people who worked in the inn. But it was creepy in a really fascinating way. I mean, there is definitely a sense of ghosts on that island. And it was beautiful by today's standards because it's been reforested. And there are monkeys that live there. And it's it's beautiful. It, it has black sand, kind of lava beaches. But it's also the history there is in many ways so tragic and, and overwhelming that I you have a real sense of loneliness. I can only imagine during the 1940s standing on that island how you would have felt so far away from the United States while you were there. Um, it was an experience like no other. I was glad you included that photo of the tunnel opening at the back of the book. Yeah, to give a sense of how big the opening is. Yeah, that full Jeeps could drive in their ambulances. Yeah, I did feel like that was important. I needed readers to have a better sense than I did, certainly when I went into the project. Absolutely. Well, what about the title? How did you come up with the title? Well, I don't know if you remember, Cindy, because you were an early reader of this manuscript. There were several different titles, and I actually almost don't even remember them all. So I resisted the inclusion of the word angels for a while, even though these women were known as the angels of Bataan. And that was partly because the women themselves struggled with that label. They, they felt like it kind of gave them too much credit, where many of them just felt like, I was there and I did what I had to. And and they felt strange and I think guilty about being lionized when so many had perished. But at the end, I realized that I was, first of all, kind of picking up then on a line of history that maybe would flash some level of recognition for people who have heard of the Angels of Bataan. And I also tried to open it up and broaden it by saying Angels of the Pacific because I was also trying to get at all of these Filipino women these nurses who served, it was not just Americans for a long time. So while the Americans end up actually put in the prison camps, the Filipino nurses working with them continue to help these American nurses. Much of the reason these American nurses are still alive is from the sisterhood that those Filipino nurses extended by sending them food and materials into the camp for all those years. That was a critical part of of their survival. And so I really wanted to get at that idea of sisterhood across these women from different countries and cultures. And I really, you know, clearly wanted to put an emphasis on the Pacific because I really do feel like that's a differentiator with this story compared to some of the other World War II books out there. I do have to say it's really fun to see this book now because I did read it early. We've talked about it so much. I loved seeing my name in the back. Thank you very much. That's <laughs> always course. so fun. But it's really neat to see a story develop like this for me on my end of it, where we talked about it long ago when the Dorothea Lang book, Learning to See, you know, yeah. when we hosted you for that, I think we were already talking a little bit about this one. You and I've talked about it over the years, different interviews. And so it's just really fun to see it in its final form. Yeah. And this one is a book that has changed a lot. I mean, in my kind of original thinking of it, I even had sort of a like a, not a heist, that's not the right word, but there was an aspect of kind of lost treasure in the story because there are rumors that the Japanese hid war treasure in the Philippines. And that is a rumor that persists to this day. 
But also one of the things I did for research when I went to the Philippines was I went out to these islands that are incredible, that are known for all their shipwrecks from World War II. And I went and specifically, I can't dive anymore. My ears give me too much trouble. But I did go snorkeling around one of these sunken gunboats. And it was fascinating. Just this idea of, first of all, of being in this beautiful place, the the colors and the texture underwater is so incredible. And then to kind of come upon this old shell of a boat really was very, there was a real sense of kind of being in this graveyard all of a sudden. And, and this, this tension between beauty and kind of sorrow and sadness is so striking in a place in the tropics like this in the Philippines. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I was sad when that part of the book was when I edited it out. But at the same time, I'm so glad I went and did that part of the research because those islands were incredible. And so a, a novel can often take so many different kind of tangents at various parts that then sometimes get scaled back or sometimes things are added. I mean, I, I'm sure you saw how what started in early versions as the beginning of the book ends up now as sort of one of the few final chapters of the book. So a lot of reorganization can occur and, and novels really change over the course of of um, being researched and written. And, and that can be really fun. It can also be a real source of tearing your hair out as the writer. But <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you were, you were entertained by the whole process. I definitely was. It was fascinating to see how it was from beginning to end. And that's so interesting about snorkeling near that warship. I just recently listened to Shadow Divers by Robert Curson. It's an older book. But it's about a Nazi U-boat that was discovered off the coast of New Jersey in the late 1990s. And just the way he talked about it and what it was like for those men to dive around that ship and try to discover what it was because they couldn't put a number on it. They couldn't figure out which U-boat it was. And that was kind of what the, a lot of the story was about. But it's just fascinating. And I would love to have had an experience like you did where you were able to swim around a warship like that. It was it was really one of the most incredible moments I've had. And I, I now, I just jotted down that title. I'm very eager to look at Shadow Divers because I think especially in the tropics, I was really, I love to snorkel. I, I snorkeled, or I've scuba dived on the Great Barrier Reef and I, I love being underwater. And the texture and the colors were exquisite in the Philippines. And then to come on this kind of, all of a sudden, I swear the temperature of the water changed and it dropped and it got really cold. And it was very surreal. And I, I mean, honestly, I, you expect a big shark to come out. It, it's really amazing. Um, and it, it is too bad that, that an experience like that doesn't make it into the final version of the book. But it was, for me personally, just a fascinating experience. I bet that really does sound very cool. And I think you would love Shadow Divers. I listened to it and it was a really great audiobook. Well, good to know, because as you know, I do love audiobook. Uh, well, what about what you're working on now? Well, I am working on something that's a little different from what I have worked on with my other books in the sense that this one is completely fictional. It is definitely based. I mean, you can find examples in history that are sort of connected to it. But this book is a dual timeline. It's set both in 2018 and then in kind of Belle Epoque Paris and World War I England and even kind of World War II California. So, so it's about 40 years in its historical timeline. And it is, it's about a collection of mysterious dollhouses that will tell the secrets of their owners. I'll kind of leave it at that for now. <laughs> and you love to do dollhouses because I always enjoy seeing that on your feed, all the little miniature things that you make. Well, 
So I have spent the last year redoing my great-grandmother's old dollhouse. And this is a dollhouse that's been in our family for five generations. I played with it as a girl. And this is part of the research I've been doing for this book. When I kind of conceived of the idea about a year and a half ago, I then decided, you know, here I was, it was, we in Seattle at least were very limited in sort of what we could do last winter. I decided as part of my research, I was going to I mean, this dollhouse was gross. It had like all this old yucky wallpaper from when I was a kid that was stained and peeling. And I just, I peeled all of it off and I really immersed myself, yes, in this world of kind of creating miniatures and and learning really about the history of miniatures and dollhouses. And it's a rabbit hole like nothing I've (laughs) ever been in before. It's been really fun. Well, that makes me think of Chicago and the Art Institute of Chicago and the miniature rooms there. Have you been there? Oh, yes. I have loved dollhouses my entire life. I mean, I've seen the dollhouses in Amsterdam as well that the the miniaturist is based on. I've always loved dollhouses. And I think it's because I associate my own dollhouse as a girl with where I learned really about creativity. Because that's where I am. a, And this factors into Angels of the Pacific as well. I love to sew. I love all needlework. And this was all something I learned from working on my dollhouse as a girl. I learned all of these skills, painting. I was an art minor in school. All of it can be tied back to kind of learning creativity through my dollhouse as a small kid. So this is, for me, this is coming full circle in a lot of, in a lot of ways. I love the Thorn Rooms. I, I have been through them so many times and they are so much fun. And then there's also a really big dollhouse at the Museum of Science and Industry. Oh, yeah. And I know we've been through there and seen it as well. And a U-boat. Yes. So, yeah, so many interesting things. I am not a sewer or a crafter, but I do love the Thorn Rooms. Have you read those books, the the middle grade books about them? I haven't, but my girls did. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love the, I, I, I don't know what it is about dollhouses that I have just always loved them. And when I mentioned to my agent, I was thinking about dollhouses, she got very excited. And, and so this is, you know, there, there is some history behind all this. There's the Queen Mary dollhouse, which is another sort of fascinating dollhouse in England at, at Windsor Castle that was made for Queen Mary to kind of model all of England's industry. I mean, this was coming out of World War I to kind of give a boost to the English economy. There is a lot of interesting history around dollhouses, and I've, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So hopefully I'll be done with this new one soon. That sounds very good. I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. Well, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, gosh, I feel like I've been reading a ton lately. And and of course, there are some audiobooks involved. I And I think this might have been a tip I got from you. But I loved listening to Taste by Stanley Tucci. Yes. Is there anyone who hasn't loved that book? And he narrates, which is wonderful. Oh, his narration is wonderful. You know, I first started seeing his videos during the pandemic, like there's one where he makes a Negroni, and I was just captivated. And So even though I am actually not much of a cook, I do love to eat, but I'm not much of a cook. I loved this book. It's a memoir. It's fascinating. He makes food both very approachable, and yet also he elevates it to such an art form that that alone fascinated me. So I really loved that book. I learned a lot. I also loved Beautiful Little Fools by Jillian Cantor. Uh, I just did an online event, a virtual event with Jillian last night to talk about her book. And gosh, this is a book that has really stuck with me. I loved the story from the viewpoint of Daisy Buchanan and Jordan and these women that Jillian really opens up the great Gatsby. She really broadens the story in a wonderful way. So I love that one. 
My favorite book I've been saying of 2021 was Still Life by Sarah Winman. Have you read that? I haven't. And I keep seeing it when I'm in different bookstores and the cover is just so pretty. I need to get it. I loved it. Now, I will say it's, I always caution people when I do recommend it because it's not a real plot driven book. I mean, you're turning the pages because you are so invested in these characters. These were characters. When I turn the final page, I miss them already. It's really a wonderful sense of kind of quirky, lovable, prickly figures. I, I compared it to if you enjoy the show, The Durrells and Corfu, this is a book for you. It is sort of English people finding themselves in a place they didn't expect. In this case, it's Italy. The setting is wonderful. And there is definitely some fascinating Italian history in this. The floods of Florence of the 1960s jump out at me. It's a great book. I really loved it. And I'm also listening right now. You know, I always have kind of books going and hardbacker and e-form. And then I always have audiobooks going. And so the audiobook I'm currently listening to, so I'm not done with it yet, but I'm really enjoying it, is The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. Have you read that one or listened to it? No, but my daughter loved it. She kept seeing it on Instagram and she's like, what have you heard? I said, only very positive things. And she read it in like a day and just said it was fantastic. It's really charming. And it's got a bunch of tropes that are always really enjoyable. The fake dating and I loved, I am not a STEM person necessarily. I am definitely always have been a real English history humanities type, but I loved being immersed in this world of STEM and kind of, and seeing how women navigate it and the challenges they're up against all with this, you know, this quirky fake dating situation placed on top. It's a really, it's a, it's a fun book so far. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. That's what she said. She is a STEM person. That's what she's studying. So she was really excited to see that included, but she just she actually walked me through it one night when we were on a walk. She read it over the Christmas holidays, and it was just so fun to hear about it and to see how much yeah. she enjoyed it. And I've seen nothing but wonderful things about it on Instagram. Yes. As I said, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't even, I can't even spoil it, even if I wanted to, but I <laughs> highly enjoy it, highly recommend. And the narration is great. I love a book where the narration really enhances it. And, and this is, the narrators do a great job. Narrator, I think it's only one. She does a great job. Well, I do the same thing you do. I usually have something going on audio, though I almost always do nonfiction on audio. I'm not great with fiction. Yes. And then I have a book that I read through NetGalley on my Kindle app on my iPad, and then I read like a physical book. So I usually have all three of those going depending on when I'm reading or listening or what's happening. You know, I always used to do memoir because I love how usually memoirists read their own right, audiobooks. Right. So I was doing a lot of those. I mean, I did Tara Westover's Educated on Audio. And it's been in the kind of last year, maybe, that I've started doing more fiction. And, and I really enjoy it, too. It works. Okay, so another book I loved. So when I'm talking about fiction here, a book I loved, I listened to on audiobook was The People We Keep by Allie Larkin. That was a great one. Julia Whalen narrating. I loved it. I was not ready when that book ended. I could have continued to listen to that story for even longer. I felt very emotionally invested in the characters. So, and I listened to Malibu Rising on audiobook as well. I, I, I really think that fiction lends itself beautifully often to a really great set of narrators or, or one narrator. I, I just, I think I, for some reason, I too listened only to nonfiction for a while. And boy, since opening up the world of fiction to me over audiobook, it's been really fun. My mind wanders and that's where I get stuck. And so that's why I just seem to do better with the nonfiction, but I'll try it at some point. But so far, it's been a great way for me to get through my nonfiction. I'm listening to Running with Sherman right now, which is also an older book. It is so good. Have you read it? 
that's the donkey. Yes. Is that right? <sighs> Running. You know, gosh, when that Fast Girls came out, I I had I gave that to someone. I bought it. Maybe I have it somewhere here at the house. I need to look around. I, I definitely gave my husband read it. I think I brought it home from my local bookstore and gave it to him. And I don't know where it is now. I need to dive back into that. And the author reads it. And it is so good. I'm only maybe a third of the way through, but I'm totally in love with the story. It had come highly recommended by Elizabeth Barnhill, who I always think has great recommendations. And then Valerie Kaler here at Blue Willow. And she always has good recommendations too. Oh, yeah. So I thought, well, that's fine. And the other one that's so good on audio is Will by Will Smith. Have you listened to that yet? No. You know, I have that one on my short list. Okay. I have that one on my short list and Matthew McConaughey's, both of which I've heard are terrific on audio. And I keep hearing that about green lights too. And in fact, when I flew home on Sunday, the people sitting next to me were raving about it. So I have it. I just haven't listened to it yet. But Will is so great. He raps. There's all this music oh, wow. in the background. It's it's such a creative audio. I just have been telling everyone I know, you must listen to this book. Oh, well, that sounds really... I mean, I love the idea of actually kind of capitalizing on that medium of audio to to use some right. rap, to do some rapping mm-hmm. and things like that. That sounds terrific. Okay. that's I've just bumped that. I have a few credits on Libro FM, which is my preferred platform for audiobook. Mine too. I will, I will get that one. That sounds great. Thank you. Great. Well, as always, Elise, I love talking to you and I could chat with you all day long. I know. So this has been wonderful and I loved your book, Angels of the Pacific, and I can't wait for everyone else to be reading it as well. Thank you so much. Well, not only thank you for inviting me onto the podcast, but thank you for being an early reader because you provided feedback that was really helpful. And I hope you saw it in the book. I mean, the map hasn't made it in there yet, but it's coming. But some other plot points and character development points you gave to me in your notes, really, I took those to heart and and worked that feedback in. So I really want to thank you on so many different levels for your support of this book. Absolutely. I just loved that whole process. And it was really fun to read it again. And I know we've laughed when I say read it again. But it was really fun because I liked the story the first time a lot. And I liked it again. So it was wonderful to get to do that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a lot of work. I mean, when you ask someone to be an early reader, you know, you're not just asking them to kind of casually, you know, listen to it and or read it rather and not do much. You are looking for for useful thoughts and, and you really came through for me and, and I will forever be grateful. Thank you. Oh, that makes me feel good. Thank you. Thank you. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your shows. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. 
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.